Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. In this podcast, Simon discusses some recent guidelines he's worked on, his career in research, and opportunities for PhD students following their studies. Okay, um, thank you, Simon, for joining us on the AJP podcast. I might start by asking you to do an introduction, please. Sure. My name's Simon Bell. I'm a, a pharmacist, and I'm the director at the Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety at Monash University, and I'm a, a researcher and an educator with a particular interest in optimising medication use in older people. Thank you. Um, I thought I might start off by asking you about um, aged care-related opportunities for pharmacists. I know that there's more funding going into pharmacists working into aged care, and there's probably a lot of questions for pharmacists regarding these roles. Can you please tell us something? Uh, for sure. It's an, it's an exciting time for uh, aged care and pharmacy. And uh, with, along with the, the, the many opportunities at the moment, um, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for pharmacists to take on a greater role within residential aged care. And so that involves both uh, continuing to provide resident level services, such as the residential medication management reviews uh, that we've had in Australia since 1997, uh, but also to provide new system level services. And so it's an opportunity for pharmacists to take a greater role within uh, residential aged care teams. Um, what might these roles look like, um, the new roles with the new funding coming out? Uh, certainly we've been advocating for uh, the continuation of the existing uh, residential medication management review. Um, but as I mentioned, the new, the new system level services, and we've uh, referred to the system level services as a knowledge broker role. And uh, a knowledge broker, it's a fairly new concept to pharmacy, but it's been, the term has been used in other areas of healthcare. And a knowledge broker uh, performs different activities. So that includes, for example, being a, a knowledge manager. And that might mean translating uh, clinical practice guidelines into the local policies and procedures of an aged care facility. Um, it also means acting as a linkage agent. And so by linkage agent, I mean, for example, facilitating communication between different stakeholders and also as a capacity builder. So that may mean developing competencies in the quality use of medicines as well as designing tailored interventions to assist staff to, to improve medication use. And so we would see that the, the new opportunities and roles are both a continuation of existing roles, but also these new uh, system level roles within the aged care facilities themselves. And you do a lot of work in research. And I guess I wanted to find out a little bit more about the research opportunity for pharmacists as well. Uh, there's, there's excellent research opportunities for pharmacists, and I certainly would encourage uh, pharmacists that have a passion for developing new pharmacy services and investigating how we can optimise medication use to uh, get in touch with their, uh, for example, a, a university or a research institution. Uh, at Monash University, we're often looking for opportunities to partner with clinicians uh, in all different areas of practice, and there's great opportunities within aged care at the moment. Um, and so doing research doesn't have to be only doing a PhD, of course. You can participate in research projects uh, as a clinician, uh, really what we're interested in is opportunities to, to discuss with people who have a passion for uh, improving the way that we provide medicines uh, to people. Uh, for those people who are interested in a PhD, then I would certainly encourage people to, uh, to get in touch. 
and uh, I think it's a great thing to do, a very rewarding uh, way to advance uh, your own career, but also importantly to in, uh, develop new services that can be used to improve medication management for uh, people, in this case, people with dementia or residents of aged care facilities. And uh, yeah, it's a very rewarding and uh, a good thing to do. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects you might have going on at the moment? Yeah, so we've been fortunate to receive some funding from the Medical Research Future Fund to investigate the role of knowledge brokers within residential aged care. And so this coincides with the the announcement of funding for pharmacists to be uh, on-site and embedded within aged care facilities. And so we're working on that particular project with five different aged care providers, so two aged care providers in Queensland, uh, one in New South Wales, uh, one in Victoria, and also one in Western Australia, to investigate these uh, system-level roles that pharmacists can can provide. And uh, so this will be a, a good opportunity to, I guess, to, to test and investigate um, the new model of uh, yeah, embedded on-site pharmacists. Um, I thought I'd ask a little bit about the NHMRC because they've just approved some new guidelines for the appropriate use of psychotropic medications in people living with dementia and in residential aged care. And I thought I'd ask you about your feedback or thoughts on the guidelines. So uh, we've been uh, at the Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety leading a, an 18-member multidisciplinary team to develop new guidelines for the appropriate use of psychotropic medications in people living with dementia and in residential aged care. And the, the guidelines were commissioned through the NHMRC's Dementia Centre for Research Collaboration uh, back in uh, 2020. And so the, the over-reliance on chemical restraint was identified as one of three areas needing immediate action in the interim report of the, the Royal Commission. And so part of the response to that was to develop these new guidelines. Um, so the guidelines have a medication focus and they're focused on the use of antipsychotics benzodiazepines and antidepressants and uh, these are three of the medication classes that are most implicated in in chemical restraint. So in Australia about 21% uh, of residents are dispensed uh, an antipsychotic within three months of admission, about 30% of benzodiazepine and 37% an antidepressant and rates of antipsychotic and antidepressant use are higher in people living with dementia than without dementia. So because the guidelines take a medication focus they don't necessarily relate to the management of change behaviours overall. So uh, pharmacists will still need to read these guidelines in conjunction with other resources, such as the 2016 uh, NHMRC Australian Dementia Guidelines. Uh, but hopefully they'll provide a, a valuable tool for pharmacists, uh, perhaps those who are working in uh, as an embedded pharmacist in residential aged care. Mm. Um, and the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare have also just released new guiding principles for medication management in residential aged care facilities. Can I ask you about your feedback on that? Yeah, so the, the guiding principles for medication management in residential aged care have just been updated. So the previous document was published in, in 2012. And so it was, uh, I think, time for a, for a new uh, update of that particular document. So the document contains 15 guiding principles. Um, the first two principles are, the, are new principles, so they relate to person-centred care and they also relate to communication about medications. And uh, coincidentally, the two of the first good practice statements in the new um, guidelines for the appropriate use of psychotropics are all, also relate to uh, providing person-centred care and communicating uh, about the, the benefits and the risks of medications. And so they're important additions to that particular document. 
another key feature of the new guiding principles document is a, a user guide um, about medication advisory committees. And medication advisory committees are it's an area that we've been particularly interested in. Uh, we've done some work for the Victorian Department of Health uh, in the past, looking at how we can optimise the role of medication advisory committees. And so uh, we'll also be doing some work looking at uh, the role of medication advisory committees and certainly the uh, embedded on-site pharmacists we would like to see um, be part of that, that medication advisory committee. So the medication advisory committee is really a multidisciplinary group of people who oversee or provide governance related to medications um, in residential aged care. And all aged care facilities should have access to a medication advisory committee. Um, we would argue that there's opportunities for these medication advisor, advisory committees in many cases to take a more proactive approach to um, identify um, emerging medication-related issues and to put in place to develop and to monitor and evaluate uh, local strategies to improve the quality use of medicines. And many of those principles are embedded in the new user guide for medication advisory committees. Uh, there's also a, a checklist for medication advisory committees. So uh, it's really a self-audit tool that uh, pharmacists and aged care providers can use um, to optimise the role of those committees. Brilliant. So I thought I'd ask research probably whether it be the topics that have been to, um, undertaken or how you conduct research has it changed um, post-COVID like after the past couple of years? I think the um, COVID uh, has been a particular challenge of course for residential aged care. Um, I think the, there have of course been challenges in terms of doing health services research in the residential aged care setting. Um, having said that I think COVID has taught us a lot about research. Um, we're perhaps more connected online than we ever have been before. And I think that's really created opportunities for uh, networking nationally and internationally. And so, uh, I mean, I reflect now that many of our seminars now are broadcast and have participants from across Australia and, and also internationally. And we're able to, to access uh, education resources and to network with other researchers in Australia and internationally in ways that perhaps we haven't done before. So um, I think we have learned a lot. Um, it has been a challenging time in, in many ways, but I would hopefully, uh, well, hopefully we can come out of the, the COVID situation perhaps stronger than we have in terms of uh, the way that we do conduct research. Have the topics or interests changed post-COVID as well? So what you were looking at in 2019 versus the topics of research now, or are they still quite similar? I think one thing that COVID has done is to, to highlight that older people are a vulnerable population group. And so older people, of course, are susceptible to adverse events with medicines and the, the benefits and also the risks of medicines may be different as, as people age. And so I think um, COVID has really shone, shone a light on that. And as pharmacists, I think we need to be um, both generating and applying evidence that is specific to those populations in which uh, use medicines most. And we know that polypharmacy or multiple medication use is very common in older people. And so these are not new issues, but I think the COVID situation has really shone a, shone a light on those particular issues. Um, I think from a pharmacy profession perspective, then uh, pharmacists have really demonstrated their valuable role within the community. And uh, pharmacists are providing more COVID vaccinations, for example, now than they ever have in the past, or more than, even more than other healthcare professionals. And I, I think that's a great platform that we can build on, and I would hope that we can continue to provide um, a range of additional pharmacy services uh, into the future as well. So the evidence-based research that you do here has 
the opportunity to really change pharmacy practice. Is there some research that you can think of that has been conducted here that really has changed pharmacy practice? Sure, well, I mean, the, the practice of pharmacy certainly should be based on evidence. I think that's a really important principle and uh, we certainly have an obligation as a pharmacist to practice in accordance with the latest best available evidence and we've been particularly interested at the Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety in uh, generating evidence that's specific to vulnerable groups who are often excluded from participating in randomised controlled trials. And so that includes, for example, people with dementia or people who are frail. And we've been really looking at really addressing the evidence gaps that arise through excluding some of these vulnerable groups from participating in the randomised trials that are often conducted um, before medicines come to the market. And so that's, uh, there's different ways in which we can do that, but one of the ways is that we analyse administrative pharmacy data. So, for example, our pharmaceutical benefit scheme data and hospital data, and we're able to, to generate evidence specific to these groups that, um, for which they're not, not well researched. And one of the challenges, of course, about developing a new guideline related to residential aged care and people living with dementia is the absence of randomised controlled trial evidence. And so... In the past, what we've done is we've often extrapolated evidence that's uh, generated in, in younger and predominantly healthier and more robust adults to, to older people. And uh, sometimes that's, that's been good, but in other times uh, we're not necessarily getting accurate information about the benefits and risks of those medications. So we've been particularly interested in uh, generating new evidence for those particular groups. So what are some of the research projects coming up like um, for the rest of the year or even next year? What's coming in the future? Well, the, uh, the new NHNMRC guidelines for the appropriate use of psychotropic medications in people living with dementia and aged care has been a big focus over the last two years. And so we'll be now looking to implement those new guidelines. Um, we have a project uh, called the EMBRACE study where we compare three different approaches to guideline translation. And that uh, includes the knowledge broker uh, role that I mentioned uh, earlier. We've also been investigating the role of the pharmacist quality use of medicine service and also uh, providing aged care facilities with some of the resources that will accompany the guideline. So that includes uh, a companion guide, uh, also a, a one-page fact sheets in relation to each of the three medication classes, the antipsychotics, benzodiazepines and antidepressants, and also an inventory of existing resources. Uh, we're also translating some of the key guideline materials into different languages so they can be more accessible to uh, residents, carers and aged care workers. And so we've got a number of projects that are uh, related to that. Where can people find most of these resources or most of these guidelines and documents that you've mentioned? So the, the new guideline will be launched uh, very shortly. Uh, it will be available uh, through a platform called Magic App which is uh, compatible with smartphones and can be uh, easy to, to search and also to, to update. Uh, we'll also be working with different professional organisations to make um, information about the guideline available through their different publications. Um, so people will certainly hopefully get to get a chance to or certainly can see the uh, yeah, further information about the guideline shortly. Okay. Um, and if people want to move into a career into research, what should they consider? Um, I think the uh, doing a PhD, for example, is a, it's a really rewarding uh, process. Um, most researchers uh, and academics are very passionate to talk about their topic areas, so I think uh, making a direct contact um, would be a, a really good start. Um, 
various different universities. They will have websites where you can can look at the names of researchers. If people have graduated from a university, they might like to get back in touch with the university. We always like to just hear from our graduates. And uh, I'm sure most uh, universities around Australia are the same. Um, So I think that's a good starting point. Uh, It's also a good idea to talk to to current PhD candidates. Um, We have at our Centre for Medicine, Use and Safety, we have around 30 PhD candidates uh, researching different aspects of medication safety. Um, Many of those PhD candidates are working in the aged care um, area. So, for example, we have a PhD PhD candidate looking at um, optimising analgesic use in residential aged care. Uh, That's Laura Dowd. And uh, analgesic stewardship is a a big focus at the moment. Um, Bridget McInerney is another PhD student who, for example, is looking at um, psychotropic adverse event monitoring. And psychotropic adverse event monitoring is one of the um, the good practice statements that's uh, in the new guideline. Um, so there's there's great opportunities to do projects uh, just like those um, PhD candidates, and I think all all academics and uh, and researchers probably have uh, more ideas than they do uh, yeah, researchers to be able to undertake those those different projects. So I think that's a really good starting point. So currently, where you work um, doing your research, there's about thirty PhD students and a few researchers guiding them. Is that correct? That's, that's right. We have around about 30 PhD candidates at, a, at our centre and that's a combination of both uh, Australian uh, trained uh, PhD candidates and also international PhD candidates. So most but not all of our PhD candidates have a, a pharmacy background. Uh, we also have PhD candidates with a medical background, um, biostatistics and epidemiology and, and public health backgrounds as well. And so we, we try to uh, yeah, have a, a diverse team of researchers and I think that provides a lot of a great opportunity for discussion and collaboration and really creates an environment in which we can be hopefully quite innovative and develop new services and evaluate new services. Brilliant. Um, I've asked most of my questions. What have I not asked you? <laughs> have I covered everything on your list? Yeah, I, I think I think so. I think uh, you've covered most things on the on the list, I can talk a little bit more about the guideline if you would please, if yeah. you would like. So, yeah. So the new clinical practice guidelines uh, for the appropriate use of psychotropic medications in people living with dementia and in residential aged care will inf- include fifteen conditional recommendations and forty nine good practice statements. And those recommendations and good practice statements will have implications for uh, prescribers, uh, those involved in dispensing, such as, as pharmacists, and also those who administer medications. Um, we've made conditional recommendations uh, rather than strong recommendations. And with the conditional recommendations uh, reflect the fact that while we believe the majority of people would choose um, to act in accordance with the recommendation, uh, there's still significant variability in the decisions that uh, residents and carers may make in relation to medications. So the fact that we've developed conditional recommendations uh, really highlights the importance of shared decision-making between clinicians and residents and carers, and that's a really important part of the the process. Where there wasn't uh, necessarily a, a large body of evidence, but where the 18-member guideline group uh, thought it was important, we came up with uh, good practice statements, and uh, they relate to different aspects of uh, psychotropic medication use in general, and then also We've have some good practice statements specifically related to antipsychotics, um, benzodiazepines, and antidepressants, 
and a number of these good practice statements will have implications for pharmacy practice. Uh, example would be the adverse event monitoring of different psychotropic medications, and uh, we've recommended that uh, people who use antipsychotics or benzodiazepines or antidepressants should have an adverse event monitoring protocol. Uh, we've also recommended that before an antipsychotic is uh, prescribed or dispensed or administered for the first time, then the healthcare professional involved should have a discussion with at least one other healthcare professional invo involved in the direct care uh, of that particular resident. So we've uh, put in place the measures that will uh, hopefully improve the use of um, these medications that are continue to be widely prescribed in the residential aged care setting, um, despite accumulating evidence uh, of harm. But we do recognise that there, there may be a role for these medications. Um, our guidelines hasn't focused on the use of these medications in mental health conditions. We've specifically focused on use of the medications uh, in dementia for changed change behaviours. Brilliant. So look at that. Okay. I'm trying to think um, about what people, so people might want to know what your day looks like or what your week looks like or what it looks like to actually work in your environment because um, it's very different to theirs. So maybe you can tell us a little bit what it's like yet, how you, how long it takes to actually develop the guidelines and the process. Sure. Well, the, uh, the day in the life of a, a researcher or an educator, is, uh, it's always changing. It's, it's exciting. Um, no one day is, is like another day. Uh, the opportunity to, to work on projects that are of public health importance uh, and importance for the way that people use medicines and get positive outcomes from those medicines is, is particularly rewarding and exciting. And so uh, a typical day involves uh, collaborating with uh, a range of different um, stakeholders. So they may be different healthcare professionals, uh, it may be uh, consumers and carers. Uh, we also work closely with uh, people internationally as well, so there's an opportunity to share perspectives on pharmacy and medicines management with people from all over the world. And so that means that uh, every day is an exciting day and uh, we can, can learn a lot from, from each other. Uh, providing education to pharmacy students, both at the undergraduate and the postgraduate level, of course, is also incredibly important. And uh, our future pharmacists, of course, are the ones that will lead the profession. And so... I think the opportunity to provide education to those future pharmacists, but also learn from those pharmacists as well, or future pharmacists, is is really great. So I think it's uh, yeah, working within academia is incredibly rewarding. Um, it's uh, there's lots of people around with uh, a lot of passion and enthusiasm for pharmacy, and the opportunity to be part of that, I think, uh, makes it a great career. Thank you. Do you think I've covered everything? Anything I've um, missed? I think that's, um, I mean, if you would like to, I can, I can talk a bit more about the, the pharmacists in um, residential aged care, if you... Please. So, please, because um, I think that people want to know that since there is funding, how different the roles will be in case they want to take one of those roles as well. Yeah, so I think uh, in terms of the uh, education and training needs that pharmacists might have to work in residential aged care, I think uh, in general, pharmacists are... Have pretty good clinical knowledge about medication um, issues and so I think a pharmacist will be able to apply a lot of that clinical knowledge to the residential aged care setting. We know that uh, older people often have polypharmacy and multiple medication use. Um, I think there are some unique issues related to residential aged care and I think they often relate to the, the setting itself and that the systems and the processes 
And so I think with support, however, pharmacists are very well placed to work in the residential aged care setting. And I believe that uh, aged care provider organisations will welcome the input from pharmacists. And certainly anecdotally, many of our pharmacy students are very passionate about the new opportunities to work in residential aged care. And so I think it will be important that we provide support for new pharmacists moving into this particular setting. So there'll be roles for pharmacists with a, a range of different experiences to provide both direct services and or mentoring and support for those pharmacists to choose to work in this, this setting. Thank you. Um, so where do PhD graduates typically go on to work? So when people complete a, a PhD, there's a number of different places. And uh, so some of those places might include, for example, at a, at a university or a research institution. Uh, many people will go on to provide education and that might be education at a, at a university or education through a professional organisation. Uh, other people would go to work in the pharmaceutical industry in a range of different um, positions. Uh, people may also go to work in, in government. There's a, a range of roles, for example, with the health department uh, in, in policy-related uh, positions. Uh, in, in our area, which is or my area, which is medicines, use and safety, uh, we find PhD students may go on when they graduate to work with organisations like the Therapeutic Goods Administration, um, or in, in regulatory affairs. So there's, there's quite a number of different opportunities. And those opportunities are both in Australia, but also internationally as well. And I think the opportunity to practice pharmacy in different countries is incredibly rewarding. So you've mentioned quite a bit um, about some of the guidelines and documents you've been part of and the research. How long does it actually take to come up with these guidelines and do the research for them? So to develop the new guidelines for the appropriate use of psychotropic medications, we had a, a team of four people working for around about two years. So it was quite an involved process. So the, the clinical questions for inclusion in the guidelines have actually been generated through consultation with different stakeholders. So that included both uh, health professional stakeholders, so professional organisations, uh, policy organisations, um, such as the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare, and also uh, different uh, consumer groups. And so we prioritised the clinical questions to include in the guidelines. Uh, we then conducted systematic reviews or updated systematic reviews of the evidence in relation to each of the clinical questions. So we conducted around about 10 systematic reviews of the literature. Uh, we reviewed the literature up until April uh, 2021. And then we, we had to meet as a guideline group to um, consider the recommendations that we would make based on that particular evidence. And we applied what's called the grade evidence to decision framework. So in formulating a recommendation or good practice statement, it's not only about the, the research evidence, but it's also about factors such as the patient's preferences and values or the resident's preferences and values and issues of equity and feasibility and acceptability. And so it's really about blending these different dimensions that go into making up a, a recommendation. So we had an, an 18 member guideline development group and they met in relation to each of the clinical questions included in the guideline. And uh, we had a discussion and in, importantly, that discussion included um, carers and, and advocates uh, of people with dementia. And so that was an important part of the, the process. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation.
If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.